I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up, and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 30, which along with Psalm 32 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, May the 7th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. Uh, We are continuing our look at the prophecy of Daniel. Today we're in the sixth chapter, the 16th through the 28th verses. We are also in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 27 to 39, and then in the third epistle of John, the whole thing. So, um, remember, what has happened is, is that Daniel has refused to, uh, to comply with the edict of the king that they're not to worship or petition any other power except the king. And he was set up, <laughs> although he didn't care, um, he was going to obey his God. That was the bottom line. But, but there's, remember the the uh, attitude of Nebuchadnezzar to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they refused to comply with his edict to bow down to the image that he set up. And he was so furious, he heated the fiery furnace seven times hotter than normal. Here, though, the king is heartbroken because he didn't want this to apply to Daniel. But the way that the law worked there is that once it was signed, then there was no way to annul the law. So the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Well, I'm only here (laughs) because you signed a law. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own seal and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. That should sound a little familiar. Because if you look at Matthew 27, 62 to 66, the chief priests and the Pharisees who had set up Jesus and then conducted the kangaroo court and got their way to have him crucified, gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise again. Therefore, order the sepulcher to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to him, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went, and they made the sepulchre secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So it's very similar to what happens here with Daniel. When the, the stone is rolled over the den and a seal put upon it to make sure that nobody breaks that seal. <coughs> it's an interesting thing to say. There's a there's a movie, by the way, called Risen that I highly recommend. Um, I don't recommend a lot of Christian um, entertainment, but I do highly recommend Risen. It stars Joseph Fiennes, and uh, it, it's a it's a really well done movie about the Romans uh, trying to figure out what happened to Jesus. Where did that body go? And it's really really well done. So I highly recommend it. Anyway, so. They've set the seal. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting for Daniel. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. So he was up all night, concerned about Daniel. That's how much he cared about him. Difference between Cyrus, the king of Persia, and 
Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. Again, there's a there's these echoes of the gospel in there because as soon as the day breaks, the king in this case goes and runs to the to the lion's den, which would have been a tomb, which everybody expected to be a tomb for Daniel, just like the women did. And then after the disciples heard that the tomb was empty, they went. But the women went at daybreak to to take care of the body of Jesus, and and here the king goes to see. Um, what, what happened? As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. His expectation is Daniel's dead, just like the women's expectation is Jesus is, is still there in, in the tomb, in it, you know, dead. <clears throat> the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. May my God send his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. Also before you, king, O king, I have done no harm. So I, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't uh, I, I broke that law, but that law was unjust, and it was wrong. I have not betrayed you in any shape, form, or fashion. <clears throat> then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Sounds a lot like the, um, the situation with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's no smell of smoke on him here. There's no kind of harm found on him because he had trusted in his God, just like they did. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives— and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. A strong, powerful statement of faith and belief. Uh, an excellent statement about who Yahweh is. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. In the gospel today, Jesus is continuing on, and he sees a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, like the other disciples did, like the fishermen did, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So he did what they did, the previous disciples, because when we read John's Gospel, what do we see? As soon as somebody they meet Jesus, they go out and find their brothers, and they find friends, and they bring them to see Jesus. Well, Matthew, because he's a tax collector, has been ostracized from the Jewish community, and now what does he do? Well, he brings his friends, the only people who have anything to do with him, other tax collectors, and they and he has a banquet for them. He wants them to meet Jesus. It's the most important thing that he can do. You know, we do the same thing in our own lives a lot of cases. I mean, I've certainly had people say, you got to come with me, and I've got to take you to lunch, take you to dinner, whatever. Because you got to try this new restaurant. I mean, it's it's always you got to try this. You got to try this. And people want things that they're passionate about and that they're excited about. They want you to 
to be passionate about him as well. And so here we see this is exactly the way it should be. We should go and speak to our friends. I had a good friend in Pauly's Island who told me one time that there was a group of uh, drug addicts, basically, in the little town that, that he lived in. And one of those guys came to know the Lord. And they were concerned about him, the, the Christians were, because, well, he kept hanging out with those people. And so they were concerned, and they said, you know, this is not right. You, you, you need Christian community. And he kind of looked at him and said, I'm telling these people about Jesus. I want to make my community Christian. And that's what we do, right? We want to pull people out of life and bring them into our thing and bring them into the church, and we want to separate them from the rest of the world. Well, that's not the way evangelism works. It's not the way Jesus worked. He came into the world. God came into the world. He kind of left his community and came into a sinful community. And it's important that that we bring along those who are with us. And Levi made him a great feast, and there was a great company of tax collectors. And the Pharisees and their scribes, because when you had a notable personage like this for a meal in your home, then other people could come, and they could hang around sort of on the fringes and the periphery. They weren't invited necessarily to the meal, but they they could hear the conversation and kind of participate in it. And so they grumbled at the disciples. Why didn't they grumble at Jesus? Said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And some of the disciples are probably sitting there at that dinner saying, that's a really good question. I'd really like to know why why I'm suddenly hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. This is not what I thought that I was signing up for. So <clears throat> Jesus answered them, though, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And, and that's an important thing because it sounds like at some level that he's letting the Pharisees off and saying, I didn't come to hang out with people like you, but that's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is, is, is that if you think you're righteous, you have a problem. You don't understand. They do. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So, hey, even John's people <clears throat> act like us, do the things we do. How come your people are not? Are y'all Jewish? Because I'm not sure. John seems to obey the the commandments, he seems to keep the festivals and the fasts, you, not so much. And so Jesus said, can you make wedding guests fast when the bridegroom's with them? The days will come when the bridegroom's taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. We're getting, we've just come off a fast. (laughs) That's what Lent is. That's what Advent is kind of intended to be as well. It's going to be a mini Lent. Um, It is important for us to fast. We, We do need to fast because we need to be reminded and we that that all things come of him and so sometimes it's best to deny ourselves something and and uh, you see the king in that first lesson Cyrus uh, Darius I mean um, fasted because he, he literally couldn't eat because there was something he wanted so much he wanted Daniel to be okay and so he fasted that night he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it onto an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new won't match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it'll be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. And certainly that's the case. That 
what Jesus is trying to get across there is is the same thing that Isaiah announces or God announces through Isaiah. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. See, it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Well, they're they're accustomed to and they like the old thing. But but Jesus is saying these two things are different in some ways. And so while we may not um, be beholden to the ceremonial law and, and to some of the other parts of the law, the part that has to do with personal responsibility and personal morality, th- those things didn't pass away. But the ceremonial things passed away. So Jesus is saying there's something new coming. It's interesting that the, the sacrificial system is about to end, and they're not going to have anything to do with that. They, they don't have any control over that happening, because when the temple is destroyed, that's the only place where sacrifices can be made, so that when the temple's destroyed, then there's no other sacrifice possible until the, the temple is restored, and there's certainly people working for that now. But what's interesting is, is that Maimonides, the Rambam, who I've spoken of several times, um, and probably should speak about more, <laughs> just because I enjoy him very much, and I, I think he's a brilliant scholar, but um, he was a Jewish scholar, and he was about the 12th century, and the, he was in Egypt primarily, but he was also in Europe as well, so it, Spain. And so he, um, he believed that the temple being gone wasn't an altogether terrible thing, because what he believed was is that sort of the, the sacrificial system was a, a, a dispensation. So for a period of time, it served a purpose, but and the purpose was that when God was gathering his people, they needed to worship in the same way that other people did. And the reason they would need that is because they wouldn't recognize it as a religion if it didn't include some of the elements of the religions that they were familiar with. And so what he believed was that the sacrificial system was done away with in the destruction of the temple, but that it would be permanently done away with because it was barbaric and it was no longer necessary. So it's interesting that he would see that. And and so there's always sort of a renewal element at some level within Judaism. In the epistle today, John says, the elder to the beloved Gaius, which would be a male, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. You know, and, and I understand that. Having pastored a church, having been on staff at a church, and having been around this thing a, a while, it's always incredibly gratifying to see people that you know that have come to faith um, within your ministry, that they're continuing to walk in that faith and in that truth, and they haven't um, thrown that off for something different. And certainly today, it's a it's a real problem that that people can go off the rails. There's a, there's a lot of false teaching out there, and so it, it's it is a great joy when you when you meet somebody you hadn't seen in a while that you you know came to faith or or, or came to walk in that faith <clears throat> it, through your ministry that they're continuing to walk in that. One of the first things that I did when I went to seminary, actually, was contact a woman who had loved me dearly when I was 16, 17, 18 years old, believed that I was going into the ministry, and then sort of, you know, from a distance, watched me kind of flounder for a while, and, and not walk away from faith, but walk away from walking out my faith. And I called her to let her know, you know, kind of that, that I had come back, because I knew that it would mean a lot to her. <laughs> 
Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You'll do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. The people that, that told John about Gaius and the people in that church that were wherever he was, that he says, you should, you should send them off well. In other words, provide for them when they leave. For they've gone out for the sake of the name, the name being Jesus, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I've written something to the church, by, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. And we don't know who this Diotrephes is. He's somebody who is obviously important in the church, and he thinks he's more important than he actually is. So if I come, I'll bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. I mean, this guy needed to be kicked out of the church. I mean, he needed serious discipline. We don't. We assume he was a leader somehow in the church, but we. But we've got to believe that that this guy was. He was. He was ruling over the church in a way that shouldn't be done. And you know, I was in a denomination where I watched this happen. I watched this happen at a local level against a bishop, and and it it it's sad and it's sick, and and I was ostracized because I, I decided not you know because this person that I that I'm speaking of was somebody who mentored me, he had not sinned in any shape form or fashion, he had not taught nonsense in any shape form or fashion. It was a personal thing. And that personal thing spilled over into a whole bunch of different pastors who then began to speak against him and against people who stayed with him. And, and it was wrong. It was sin. And, and I never saw that sin repented of, still haven't seen that sin repented of. But So I understand what John's saying here about diatrophies. Beloved, beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So he's vouching for this Demetrius. I had much to write you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we'll talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. It's important. It's very important in fact, that, that we stand in the truth always. And the truth is Jesus and him crucified, raised from the dead, risen, coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. It's important that we stand in that truth, that we not allow ourselves to be pulled to and fro, that when we see him, when we recognize him and we proclaim him, we proclaim him as the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. We not allow ourselves to be dragged into the belief that there are multiple ways and, and we've got to stand firm. It's a time in history when we in the church need to stand firm in our testimony and in the truth.